Welcome to Short Course, Episode 2, for January 17th, 2018. I'm your host, Ben Barry. Today I wanted to jump right into my first regular episode here, after last week's introductory episode, and talk about IPSC, and in particular, my experience shooting the IPSC Nationals in 2017 here in the U.S., uh, down in Frostburg, Florida. First, as a bit of introduction, I primarily shoot USPSA, and most people who aren't a wonk in the sport, and even a lot of the people who are in the sport, uh, think that USPSA and IPSC are the same, and they kind of are. Uh, IPSC is the international organization that sanctions the rules, and USPSA is the U.S.'s regional member of IPSC. You can't actually be an IPSC member. You can only join your country's regional IPSC affiliate. In the U.S., that's USPSA. USPSA is also a little bit unusual in that we actually make our own rules, I've never actually heard an official explanation for why this works or how it works. I don't know of any other country that does this. You know, we are technically an IPSC member, but we don't follow the core IPSC rulebook, which is, I don't know, it's kind of cool. I mean, we can make up our own rules because America, but it does mean that once a year, there is a separate nationals that's not the U.S. Nat- or it is the U.S. nationals, but it's not the USPSA nationals. It's the IPSC United States National Championship. And what that means for anybody shooting it is that it uses the IPSC rules, not the USPSA rules. They overlap. I mean, you know, it's like 95% overlap. It's very, very similar. The differences are pretty slight, mostly around gear and a a couple tweaks. And maybe we'll get into what all those are uh, as the episode goes on or in in a later episode. But the upshot of it is, it is a, it is as far as I know, the one USPSA match run on U.S. soil every year. Although there is one interesting caveat to that, which is that this year in... So last year in 2017 was the handgun world shoot in France. This year in 2018, that same range in France is hosting the IPSC shotgun world shoot. And so the U.S. So Strategic Match Design, which is a company uh, based in the, the southeast of the U.S., they are running at least one, maybe more. I, I just saw the results come through of one, but they're running IPSC shotgun matches here in the U.S. to help competitors prep to go overseas and, and shoot the IPSC shotgun matches because they are subtly, the rules are subtly different than some of the, the shotgun-only matches here in the U.S. So that's kind of cool. That's the only other example I know of of an actual IPSC match being run in the U.S. Now, you'll still hear IPSC thrown around. I mean, at the, the club I'm a member at, the club, you know, my home range, they still call, you know, the sheds are still labeled IPSC because back in the day they used to be the same and the US, you know, when it was founded in the 70s, it was, it was IPSC. USPSA split off at some later point, but we are still a member. Being a member of USPSA means you can, you're an IPSC member by proxy. So what is interesting about IPSC Nationals? Because it's this year in 2017, it was in Florida in July and you know, it honestly, that's not the greatest time to be in Florida and, and shoot a national championship. In in an average year, IPSC Nationals is interesting because it is one of the matches that you have to shoot and do well at to qualify to be a member of the U.S. World Shoot Team. So the U.S. chooses the World Shoot Team based on a hybrid of the results from IPSC U.S. Nationals and USPSA U.S. Nationals to try and basically pick who the best shooters in each division are. And then that's the world shoot team that, that we send to the whatever the world shoot is every three years. But this year, since in 2017, since the, it was a world shoot year, the world shoot teams had already been decided. So most of the, the, the people who would normally come 
weren't there. And so it was actually uh, a pretty interesting experience because it was a very, very laid back nationals. It was only 16 stages. It was a, you know, two day, half day format match. And one of the things about IPSEC is that the stages on average are shorter than in the U.S. because they have a, a rule about you have to have three short stages for every two medium stages for every one long stage. So grading on a curve, shooting eight IPSEC stages is, you know, roughly in the neighborhood in terms of round count is going to be something like five or six USPSA stages. If, you know, it's typical USPSA average round count in the mid 20s with a bunch of 32s thrown in there. So it was a it was a really short kind of informal nationals. Not to say it wasn't rigorously run. Um, it was well staffed and 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 everything. But it was the the turnout was fairly low because it just wasn't it wasn't a world shoot year. It was announced on a little bit of a short notice, and so people hadn't necessarily worked it into their calendars. But I'd been keeping an eye out for it because it's always interested me, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is just kind of curiosity. I mean, this is. IPSEC is the rule set that is used to adjudicate the world champion. So it's kind of odd to me that it's not more widespread in the U.S., but for understandable reasons. It's kind of a pain trying to maintain two separate sets of gear for, at least in, in production, because the, the gear differences are somewhat subtle. But it's not it's not terrible, but I, I, there's not really a lot of incentive to your average match director to run under IPSEC rules. But I was curious about it. I know that in general, just because it's not you know, the Ipsic Nationals is, isn't terribly prestigious. It isn't seen as a, a fun match to shoot, in part because in general, Ipsic stages tend to be harder. They tend to be lower hit factor. They tend to have longer shots, tighter partials, more scattered arrays. You rarely see two targets, much less three or four, all bunched up together. You, you just, for whatever reason, culturally in the in the sport, you don't see it. And so it was It was a challenge. It was different. It was just something that, that I wanted to be familiar with. And I, I want to shoot this match in the future. So even though there was no, I, I knew that it wouldn't be particularly well attended in 2017, I wanted to go just get my feet wet and kind of just see what it was all about. So step one was just getting my production guns switched over to be IPSC legal instead of USPSA legal. And the main difference there is just that in IPSC on a production gun, the first trigger pull has to have a pull weight of at least five pounds, which isn't really a big deal on a double single gun. On a Glock or any other striker-fired gun, it means that every trigger pull is going to be five pounds because there's no double single transition. But shooting Tamfo stock twos, it was kind of a non-issue. Uh, I ended up swapping. They, they're also Ipsic production is also more strict about aftermarket components, so even internal components have to be swapped for other factory parts. And so even if it's not a visible external modification, they want you using. If it's a Tamfolio, they want you using Tamfolio parts. The nice thing is, Tamfolio produces a lot of factory performance parts, I assume, because they sponsor Eric Rafael and he asked them to make them so that he could win the world shoot with a with a stock two. But they're available, so it's just a matter of buying a couple different springs and, and respringing the gun mildly and changing out the firing pin and, and some minor components like that just to be absolutely bulletproof legal. And that, that wasn't a big deal. Once I got to the match, so one of the interesting things about IPSEC is that they don't allow the competitors to walk the stages any time before it's their turn to shoot the stage. You can walk around the range, you can look at the bays, but you can't actually be on the bays, look at target presentations, anything like that, unless it is your turn to shoot. And to be kind of honest, I liked that. I mean, we 
in USPSA, we're pretty much used to any big match, nationals, state match, area match, anything like that. You got to show up the day before and walk the stages just to get to spend potentially an hour, two hours, sometimes three hours, depending on the number of stages, the complexity, how many people are on them, looking at the stages and figuring out all the angles you can see different targets from and planning out your stages so that when you actually get on the bay, you don't, you you already kind of know your stage plan. And, you know, I'll do that. If it's, if it's allowed by the rule set, if it's a USPSA match and that's what's required to be competitive, I will do that. But if I don't have to show up a day early, if I don't have to take off another day of, uh, of PTO from work, you know, if I can just sort of show up on the match day and be on an even footing with everybody else, that's kind of cool. I, I, I don't hate that. So I'll do whatever the rules allow. But the fact that I didn't have to get to Florida a day early just to look at these stages was nice. And again, because most of the stages on average tend to be shorter, there aren't as many 32-round extensive stage planning exercises. A lot more of it is sort of technical, short course, execute the fundamentals type stages, which is nice. And then some of the other rules differences are things like you're not allowed to take sight pictures at Make Ready. You can load the gun, and if you're an open guy, you can take a sight picture at the ground, but none of this air gunning through the stage, take as long as you want. There's an expectation that make ready will be relatively short and that helps keep the match moving. It helps things move along. So you don't have things bogging down quite as much. And then perhaps the most interesting rules difference from my perspective is just the fact that in production there, they have 15 round magazines instead of USPSA's 10, which I like, I, you know, I'm not going to launch a campaign to change USPSA's rules, but Shooting 15-round production in Ipsic, it, it gives you more options. You can shoot two six-round arrays without reloading between them. On a 32-round field course, you know, a long course type thing, you usually will only have to reload two times instead of three. So it gives you a little bit more options to shoot leaving and entering positions instead of necessarily reloading on the move. You know, you're you're able to be a little bit more dynamic, for lack of a better term. So I, I like that. I I wouldn't mind seeing that change made in USPSA. Honestly, I don't think it would make any real competitive difference because any any production gun, I mean, even a Glock 19 can can hold 15 rounds, but that's a discussion for another time. What's uh, What was also interesting to me is when you go to equipment check, uh, with production, they don't, they don't put your gun in the box. <laughs> there, there's, no, uh, there's no production box. There's a box for what they call standard, which is what we in the US call limited, and that's the way that the the standard overall magazine length is is judged too. In the US, there's a gauge and your mags have to fit the gauge. In Ipsic, your limited gun has to fit in the limited box with a mag inserted. And so they use these little wedge base pads. I think instead of being 140 millimeters, standard magazines tend to be somewhere in the 127 range. So it was a little bit odd when I went over to the equipment check station with a limited shooter and they didn't box my gun and they did box his gun. And, you know, in, in production, it's just if it's if the gun's on the list, then and it's within it's within a certain number of ounces of the list stated weight, you're fine. That's the only way they stop you from hanging a bunch of stuff off of it or modifying it too hard is based on weight, not based on the box. So when they didn't box my gun and they did box the standard shooter's gun, I it took me a minute, but then I figured out what was going on and everything was it was fine. And honestly, you know, other than, than those couple of things, other than 
the fact that they use the octagon targets, the, the classics instead of the metrics with the heads like we do in the U.S., it was kind of not that different. The The stages were similar. The, the flavor was very different in the sense that the targets were more spread out. You didn't see lots of targets bunched up. It tended to be one here, one there, more sort of wide transitions between targets, tighter partials. But honestly, I thought that was kind of cool. I think it's a little bit more challenging. It's, it's less of a hosing competition and more of a, I hate to use the word technical again, but that kind of sort of surgical moving between from point to point versus setting up and spraying bullets and then running somewhere else. That was pretty cool. I liked that. Something that was definitely a learning experience for me was having to do with the fact that you can't walk stages the day before and see some of the timers and the activator sequences. There was one stage in particular that kind of got me, and it was it was actually a really interesting target setup where there were three max traps at the end of the stage. So the, these clamshells that that cover up the target and come down and expose it and then come back up to, to cover the target with a no-shoot. And so you have a, a relatively limited window to actually engage the scoring target behind it. And the way it was set up is there were these three max traps, and in between them were two poppers. And each popper activated one of the outside max traps and the middle one. So whichever one you shot first would activate two targets, and then the popper that you shot second would activate whatever the, the third target was. And so we saw the demonstration of the timing, but not necessarily back-to-back -back of hitting one popper and then the other popper. So playing the game of taking an aggressive activator sequence that would leave less dead time but have potentially more risk versus playing it safe and shooting one popper and then the max traps that it exposed before shooting the last popper and then the, the third max trap, which would have been the conservative plan, it was it was hard to tell because we weren't able to see shooters the day before shoot it. And so I kind of felt bad for the people early up in the squad who had to just take their best guess. And there was one guy who was another production shooter. I don't know what his classification was, but, you know, roughly probably a class range. And he went in and shot the two poppers and then all three max traps back to back. And I thought, OK, yeah, that worked out great for him. Let me do that. I'm up soon. I'll just run with that plan. It worked for him. What could go wrong? And it didn't work for me. I, I knocked down both steel in, it was probably maybe a, a half second transition from one steel to the other. So they both went down at almost the same time, got the first two max traps. But by the time I got to the third one, it was already closing. I got one shot on it. And then I had to, the way they had it set up, they were technically not disappearing targets because there was another spot at the stage where they were visible from. But once the max trap was closed, it had disappeared from the position that you were shooting them at. So because I'd activated the two poppers so quickly back to back, the third max trap closed on me before I had had a chance to engage it. And so I had to run to the other spot in the stage and put two shots on it or risk taking two mics, which I don't know, may have been, may have been a wash. I actually didn't do the math on that one, but it was just an example that you got to be a little more conservative in your activator sequences when you haven't had a chance to necessarily see a lot of reps on that particular stage. And in my particular scenario, just because someone else is shooting production, because he's shooting nine millimeter, the, the speed at which he engages the two poppers isn't necessarily going to give you the same activator sequence if you transition between them, even though you're both shooting nine. So the poppers will drop at a similar speed. If you hit them back to back more quickly, then the third target's going to be exposed more quickly, which in retrospect is kind of an obvious thing to say. But in the moment, 
having, you know, something like 10, maybe 15 minutes between when we first walked on the stage and when I had to shoot it, you know, the first time I'd seen those activators move and when I had to pick a plan, visualize it, burn it in and execute it, I I made a risky gamble and it burned me. And so the lesson for me was, well, there's two things. One is when you don't have a lot of data on an activator sequence like that, plan conservatively, but also be mindful of your speed on the activator steel and when that will trigger the activators to actually come out. And just because somebody else shoots the same plan with different splits doesn't mean that you'll necessarily be able to execute that same plan and have similar splits or similar target presentations on the movers. So that was definitely a, a learning experience for me and something that I'll take into IPSC matches in terms of choosing stage plans with relatively little data and also just any other match with activators like that. One other story that I thought was interesting from IPSC Nationals, because this is something of a contentious topic in USPSA as well, is video evidence. And USPSA and IPSC in the rulebook say virtually the same thing, which is that video evidence may not be used in an arbitration. So arbitration is used after the normal remedies for appealing a call have been exhausted. So when you're on a stage, an RO makes a call, maybe it's the CRO that makes the call. Either way, if it's an RO and you disagree, you call over the CRO, you get his ruling. If you still disagree with that, you ask, you know, please come, please bring the range master. I want him to make a ruling on this. Because generally speaking, not every CRO is going to know the rule book backwards and forwards in every possible combination. But that's that's the range master's job. He's he's sort of the where the buck stops with rules calls. But if there's some call that you think the range master has made wrongly, you think that your fellow competitors would see differently, would see in your favor, you can ask for arbitration. A committee of three fellow competitors in the match who are well-versed in the rules are convened, they're presented with the evidence of the case, and asked to make a ruling based on the rulebook. And so it's they're not match staff, they don't have sort of ego to, to protect their match on the line, they're just other competitors trying to figure out what the right thing to do for another competitor in the situation is. So... But the, the reason I explain all this is in USPSA, the rule only says that video is not allowed in arbitration. The USPSA organization in charge of making the rules, the National Range Officer Institute, has issued an interpretation of that that actually expands it significantly that basically says range officials may not look at video for reviewing any call during a match ever. And I'm not sure that that's the, the right way to go, especially with so many people taking so much video. I don't think video should always win. I think video can be ambiguous sometimes, but it also can be unambiguous sometimes. And there was actually a perfect example of this at IPSC Nationals this year, and I'm glad that we were using the IPSC rules because a guy got DQ'd and was able to get it overturned. So what happened was it was a he was a lefty shooter. He was moving right to left, and so the gun was sort of in his control, but he, he happened to stumble, and the RO on the 180 to his left, said that he broke the 180. I didn't see it. I don't know what happened. But the CRO said he couldn't see the gun. He didn't see anything that obviously looked like a, a 180 break. And so he wasn't sure, and he had to defer to the RO's call. So they call the range master over because the range master, USPSA, IPSC, the range master is always called over to be notified of any DQs and sort of, you know, sign off on it and acknowledge it. And the shooter says to the range master, I've got video because the guy who was videoing him was right on his left side as well, standing very near the RO that said he'd DQ'd. And so the range master says, all right, you know, let me take a look at the video. Maybe it'll change my opinion, maybe it won't, but, you know, let me at least look at it. And 
he was, you know, and he, he remarked to me explicitly that if this were a USPSA match, he wouldn't be allowed to do this. But since it's not, he's going to and try and render a correct call. And he looked at the video and he said, yeah, the, I mean, the video is crystal clear. You did stumble. The gun did move around a little bit, but you didn't break the 180. And so he he overturned the DQ and, and gave the guy a reshoot. And I, I mean, the guy was a safe shooter. He, I didn't, he wasn't one of these guys that scared me. You know, you'll, you'll be on the a squad with that kind of guy and, and kind of be freaked out by their, their callousness. That wasn't, that wasn't him. He was a good guy. He was safe. I, I didn't see anything that I thought he should have been DQ'd for. And so the fact that the video evidence, because it was available, was able to reinstate him and let him finish the match, I, I thought it was a victory. I thought it was a good thing. It didn't bog down the match. It didn't take any longer for him to watch the video than to verbally recount the incident for the seventh time, which is, if you've ever been through one of these, usually the way that it goes. I mean, the, 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 the argument against video evidence is usually that it will slow things down or that it might not be reliable. And those can potentially be true, but the same can be said of, of, of eyewitness testimony. You know, having somebody retell the story often takes longer than it would take just to watch it happen on video. So in this particular case, I think, you know, no arbitration was involved, so it wasn't an issue. Since since it wasn't an arbitration, the range master could look at the video and, and he made what I thought was was the right call. So that was a, a, a pretty interesting discrepancy, and I think it was a good example of the way things should be run in the future. But, you know, other than that, it was uh, it was a pretty straight up match. It was very familiar, all the the scoring and the start positions and the targets. I, I mean, other other than than those subtle things, as someone who shoots a bunch of USPSA matches every year, it, it really wasn't that unfamiliar. It was it was a little bit you could almost trick yourself into forgetting that you were at an IPSC match if you didn't think too hard about it. So it was definitely a, a worthwhile experience for me. I'll be very curious to see how the what the registration looks like this year in 2018, because it will be, a, so 2018 and 2019 will be used to qualify for the 2020 world shoot. So we'll see how, how quickly it fills up. If it does, I, I actually don't know what the, what the capacity is like, even in a world shoot year, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was very challenging. I thought it was an interesting change of pace and I, I'm definitely going to shoot it again this year, you know, with the usual caveats about scheduling and, and being able to get registered and, and make the match and all that. So if this sounds interesting, if you want to shoot Ipsic Nationals, then I, I'd say sign up. I think if it's within a, a reasonable drive or you can swing flying to Florida for another match. I mean, it is frostproof, so bring a hat. There will be almost inevitably at least one or two stages that you shoot almost straight into the sun, which sucks, but it's it's frostproof. It's, it's the way it is. If that sounds... You know, if what I've talked about here sounds like an interesting time, I definitely would encourage you to try it. The rules, the gear rules, you know, they're they're subtly different. You'll almost certainly have to make some kind of subtle tweak, whatever your division is, but they aren't that much different. And I think it's worthwhile to broaden your horizons and go shoot a, a harder match like this. So hopefully I will see some of you guys there. If not, I'll tell you about how it is this year. And that's really all I got for today. I'll talk to you next time.